Support for this podcast and the following message come from Humana. Employees are the heartbeat of your business. That's why Humana offers group dental, vision, life, and disability plans designed to protect them. Exceptional service, broad networks, and modern benefits. That's the power of human care. This is The Pulse, stories about the people and places at the heart of health and science. I'm Mike and Scott. If you've tried to schedule a doctor's appointment lately, chances are you've heard a lot of this. All of our representatives are currently busy. Please stay on the line. When Sam tried to book an appointment with a new allergist and asthma specialist in the spring of this year, after moving to a new city, she had a hard time finding anybody who was taking new patients. Finally, success. She was getting somewhere, about to land an appointment. And then she said, okay, our earliest availability is October 28th. And I said, what? So I took it. I, I took the appointment. It's on the books. It's saved. But I, I need someone sooner than that. This air quality has made my asthma the worst it's ever been. Waiting, you know, several months. It's kind of scary because, you know, I can't really breathe now. This kind of situation is causing a lot of anxiety for many people who are waiting a long time for answers or relief. So I ended up having to wait a very long time to see someone for pain management for a neck injury that I sustained. The wait times and bottlenecks are worse in rural areas or with some specialties like psychiatry or neurology. The field of medicine is plagued by several shortages at the moment, and many of them have worsened since the pandemic, from trouble getting doctor's appointments to medication shortages and shortages that are affecting research. On this episode, what's the cause of all this scarcity and what are some potential solutions? Let's get started with the challenges around getting doctor's appointments. It's something reporter Liz Tung experienced in her own life this year. She had a serious medical issue and she had to be treated in the ER. From there, she was supposed to be evaluated by a neurologist. Problem was, she had to go see her primary care physician first. And they told her, sure, we have a slot for you in three months. Liz couldn't believe it. That's the soonest I can get in is three months from now. And they said, yeah. And then scheduling a neurology appointment was a whole other problem, which also took weeks and weeks and and months. That was probably the worst part of the whole experience, believe it or not. So Liz decided to dig into what looks like a serious doctor shortage, the causes of it, some potential solutions. Several of the big medical organizations have been ringing the alarm bell, saying it's a looming catastrophe and it will only get worse in years to come. But the story turned out to be not so clear cut. Here's Liz. More than just about anything, Supreet Mandir wanted one thing to become a psychiatrist. I couldn't imagine doing anything else, and this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. And by 2017, she was closer than ever. She'd finally finished med school after four grueling years, passed her boards, and now just had to clear one final hurdle, residency, the hands-on training doctors have to go through before they can practice. Supreet was so determined that she applied to every psychiatry program in the U.S., spending over $10,000 in application fees. 
And by February of 2018, she had a prospect. A program sent her an email saying they wanted her. In my mind, I was like, this is it. This is going to happen. But when Match Day rolled around in March of 2018, the day every single applicant finds out if they've been accepted to a residency, Zapreet got bad news. An email saying, we are sorry, you did not match to any position. Zapreet was devastated, but she was also confused. She was always hearing about the psychiatrist shortage in the news. And yet here she was being turned away from a field in desperate need of bodies. So Zapreet decided to look up what her chances had been. How many psychiatry residency spots were actually open? The number was laughably small. Fewer than 2,000 positions. I was like, I probably met 2,000 people just applying. There's way more people than there's actual seats. Supreet spent a year as a crisis worker at an ER in Chicago, earning money for the next round of application fees and racking up new recommendation letters. Again, she applied to every psychiatry program she could find. Again, she got a couple interviews. And again, she didn't match. So another year goes by. In 2019, Supreet tried for the third and final time. But I didn't match. I was a mess. And my family was just like, I can't believe this happened again. Supreet had invested so much in this dream of becoming a psychiatrist. At this point, seven years of her life and easily tens of thousands of dollars. But in that moment, Supreet knew that it was over. She couldn't afford to keep doing this, either financially or emotionally. She had to face up to the fact that now, in her early 30s, she was starting over. The whole thing was an emotional roller coaster. Each and every rejection had been devastating, especially since she'd always heard that the vast majority of applicants, over 90%, do end up matching. Before, it was like a shame, like, oh, you didn't match, you must be stupid. But when she started digging through the data, she realized there were way more people like her than she'd ever suspected. When I looked at the numbers, I was like, where are these people? What are they doing? Where are they? She ended up finding them, or rather they found her, online, after she started a website and matching Twitter account called UnmatchedMD.com. At the start, UnmatchedMD was designed, at least in part, to help those people, to use everything Supreet was learning to help them either reapply or connect them with companies that were looking to hire. But as her audience grew, she turned more towards advocacy, and she's used it to criticize the way the residency application system is run along with the organization that runs it, the Association of American Medical Colleges, or AAMC. And I started to get feedback from AAMC. And I started to see that they were not liking the negative attention. And then they were like, we only have 550 seniors that don't match. And I was like, did you see the data? The real number, Zapreet says, was closer to 2,000. She says the AAMC doesn't count all of the applicants. For instance, applicants who didn't get interviews, which is how they're able to boast that upwards of 94% of people end up matching. Supreet became something of an expert on match statistics. She even helped some physician advocacy groups sort through and interpret data, one of which, in testimony to Congress, claimed that more than 7,000 U.S. citizens and permanent residents go unmatched every year. It's a problem that until recently was barely talked about, at least openly, partly out of the shame that lots of med students feel over not matching. But lately, as people get more and more concerned about the doctor shortage, calls for change have been coming from all corners. 
The change, Supreet says, is simple. I wish that right away we could immediately fund more residency positions, not over a five-year span, a today span. If the shortage is immediate, the residency position should be immediate. Let us practice. It's an obvious solution. We've got potentially thousands, maybe even tens of thousands, of would-be doctors in this country who aren't allowed to practice. At the same time that we're constantly hearing about a physician shortage. So why is this happening? One big reason is money. Training residents is expensive. It costs hospitals an average of $150,000 per resident per year. And that money mostly comes from the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services. So basically, it's the federal government that decides how many residents we train. And that controls how many physicians we have in the U.S. For years, the number of residencies was growing. But by the 80s, people started getting worried we were training too many doctors. It was the era of managed care, an effort by the government to control growing health care costs, in part by reducing specialist visits. And that, of course, meant that we wouldn't need as many specialists. And then there was the publication of an influential report predicting an oversupply of doctors. All of this got the American Medical Association, or the AMA, worried that too many doctors would depress their wages. So they lobbied Congress, heavily, to cap the number of residencies it was funding, which is exactly what Congress did. In 1997, they passed the Balanced Budget Act, which froze the number of residencies at 1996 levels. But here's the problem. Since then, a few things have happened. One, our population has grown, bigger and older, both of which require more doctors. And two, lots of people pay a premium for insurance plans that don't require referrals or put limits on doctor's visits. All of this has led to more demand for healthcare services, which of course requires more doctors. Doctors that we don't have. That brings us back to Supreet and the push to create more residency slots. As reports of physician shortages have grown, so have the calls to lift that cap, including from scores of healthcare organizations, including the American Medical Association, not to mention members of Congress on both sides of the aisle, who right now are pushing for legislation to fund more residencies. But still, nothing has changed. To find out what's going on, I got in touch with Brian Carmody. He's a pediatric nephrologist who also teaches med students and works with residents. And for years, he's been publishing studies critiquing the graduate medical education system. Right at the top, Brian acknowledged the weird contradiction we're facing. You know, the United States may have a future shortage of physicians, but we don't have a shortage of doctors. By doctors, he means med school graduates who, of course, aren't able to become physicians because of the lack of residency spots. But when I asked him more about the actual physician shortage, his answer was not at all what I expected. Well, I guess I feel obligated on the front end to say that I do have some skepticism about the nature of the physician shortage in general. Wait, what? But I'd seen so many sources saying that we did have a shortage and that shortage was going to get worse. And then Brian kind of blew my mind. He told me that most of those places were sourcing their stats from the same place, the Association of American Medical Colleges, or AAMC, who, remember, are the same group that runs the residency application process 
and represents American medical schools. Which are, are, of course, organizations that are in the business of training doctors. And if we had statistics telling us that there was a shortage of automobiles and those statistics were put out by um, you know, the National Automobile Makers Association and they say, look, see here, there's people, they can't get where they want to go. Look, they're sitting at bus stops and they're doing this and that. Maybe we need more cars. Look, we need more cars on the road. See, that's the solution to this problem. I think we would all see that's a little bit biased. You see that problem through a certain lens. So all of these articles I've been reading about the dire physician shortage, all of these papers, all of these position statements and pushes for legislative change, they were all based on alarming statistics calculated by a group with a vested financial interest in training more doctors. Okay, but what about all the stories of people waiting weeks or months to see the doctor? Brian answered that it's not like there are no physician shortages anywhere. On a national scale, most doctors are concentrated in cities, while as much as 80% of rural America is underserved. Which brought me back to the issue of unmatched doctors and the push for more residency spots. Could that be the solution? I guess I would humbly suggest that those problems may not be fixed by just training more doctors. I think you need to restructure the incentives. Incentives like loan repayments to encourage doctors to practice in underserved areas or cash incentives for doctors to keep their schedules open for sick patients. So I think it depends what you're trying to accomplish, but I think that the solution in almost all areas is a little bit more nuanced than just, we need more doctors. And Brian says more residency spots won't solve the problem of unmatched applicants either. If we say, all right, well, you know, we had 45,000 applicants, so we're going to increase by 5,000 residency positions. Well, what do you think happens next year? More people will apply. And now we got to make more residency positions. And pretty soon you've got doctors that, you know, are doing things that don't need to be done. And, and that doesn't help anybody. But was Brian right? I asked if he had any hard numbers proving that we don't actually have a shortage. He told me making these predictions is incredibly complicated. But he directed me to a guy who studied the data himself. So let's start off just by having you introduce yourself and how you would like me to refer to you in the story, like your job title. Oh, how about His Royal Highness? Wouldn't that be great? Um, <laughs> no, uh, so uh, I'm Ezekiel Emanuel. I'm a breast oncologist and I'm a, uh, a professor of uh, bioethics and health policy at uh, the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania and at the Wharton School. Ezekiel's also served several presidential administrations on health policy issues and written about doctor shortages. So I figured if anyone could answer me, it was him. Do we have a physician shortage in the U.S.? (laughs) You know, if you ask certain people, especially those in the medical profession, we've always had a physician shortage forever. And it's true, he says, that we do have fewer doctors per capita than most other rich countries, from Germany to Australia to South Korea. But it's also true that in the U.S., we now have more doctors per person than ever before. The number of doctors we have per thousand people has actually been going up, not down. So by historical standards, we're actually at the high end today. I think the real issue is, what are they doing with their time? (laughs) Ezekiel says in the old days, when his father was a doctor, he was able to see 40 patients a day, but not anymore. These days, doctors are tied up doing things like filling out electronic health records or battling with insurance companies to gain prior authorization for a treatment. 
It's one of the things that frustrates doctors, and it's also, frankly, one of the things that frustrates patients. Finally, I asked him about the meat of this thing, how physician supply and demand is calculated. So the standard way is what's the proportion of the ratio we have of doctors to population and then carrying that forward. If our population goes from 330 million to 400 million, how many will we need to keep the same ratio? That's not the way to evaluate it because we have new technologies. I mean, I did a CT scan and it was basically 90 seconds. When I was training in the 1980s, you know, it was 45 minutes. So we we have to remember that medicine doesn't stand still over time. And so just picking a number and looking forward and saying, well, we're going to have more people, we're going to need more doctors at the same ratio, that's not smart. What we should do instead, he says, is look at reality. Find a group of patients who are satisfied with their primary care, see how long it takes to deliver that care, and then multiply it by the number of patients we have in the country. And just to be clear, there's no one who's in charge of, like, looking at the national need and saying, like, wow, we really need pediatricians. We should allocate this many residencies just for psychiatry. Nobody's, like, controlling the the ratios. Shocking, shocking. Absolutely true. No no one's thought this out. We do need a health strategy on the workforce, and we don't have that. The government, through Medicare, writes a check to the hospitals to train people, but it comes with very, very, very few requirements and conditions that really would or should reflect the needs of the country. So what would facilitate a redistribution of doctors across the country and across specialties? The challenge is that you can't pick up physicians and move them to another specialty and or move them to another location and say, just do this, right? Um, So they're not little chess pieces that we can just move around however we want. This is Candace Chun. She's a pediatrician and researcher with the Fitzhugh Mullen Institute for Health Workforce Equity in Washington, D.C., Candace says in 2014, a group of experts released a report proposing that funding be redistributed to get residents into the specialties that need them and the areas that need them. But that did not happen. There's a lot of interest in keeping the system the same. And not that those teaching hospitals don't want better workforce, but I think that there's a lot of fear if you change the system, um, it'll cause chaos and it will be hard on hospitals. What's more likely to work, Candace says, is one... Once again, a change to the incentives in our system. And two, expanding our imagination about possible solutions. So instead of incentivizing the training of specialties who perform expensive money-making procedures, what if we found a way to boost the compensation for primary care doctors? What if instead of limiting residencies to hospitals, we funded them at community clinics designed specifically for primary care? And what if instead of saying that only doctors can deliver primary care, we offloaded more of that work to other professionals, like physicians' assistants and nurse practitioners? All solutions that don't involve people like Saprit. But to close the loop on the question of unmatched doctors and the role they could play, all three experts I talked to agreed it was a huge waste of manpower. As for Saprit, she now works full-time on unmatchedmd.com. And as much as she'd like to see more residency slots added, 
She thinks she'll probably be in business for a long time to come. That story was reported by Liz Tan. Coming up, drug shortages are causing changes in treatment protocols for some patients and a lot of anxiety along the way. Wondering, will I have enough medication? You know, it's, it's just this lingering thought. That's next on The Pulse. Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about shortages in medicine. Right now, we're in the middle of a drug shortage that's affecting everything from ADHD medication to antibiotics and chemotherapy, and it's having a serious effect on patients. Mairead McInerney is a licensed clinical social worker. She lives near Philadelphia. In 2022, she suffered a miscarriage in the 11th week of pregnancy. She had also developed a hard bump in her right breast. At first, she thought it was related to the pregnancy. Then she had a mammogram and an ultrasound, and from there, it was a shockwave of more bad news. The lump turned out to be stage 3 triple negative breast cancer, which is aggressive. The cancer had already moved into a lymph node. Two weeks later, Maraid started chemo. Here we were in the midst of grieving the loss of our child, sort of wrapping our arms around this aggressive diagnosis, They walked us through what the treatment plan was going to look like, and it's a long one, Mike, and I very visually still remember sitting there as my oncologist drew out this map, and that map to me almost looked like a marathon. I've never run a marathon, but looking at that map, I was like, oh my gosh, this is going to take a long time. And then more bad news. Maraid's oncologist wasn't going to be able to follow the standard protocol for her type of cancer because one of the chemotherapy drugs she needed was not available. So what he did instead was to flip the protocol. And so it's been done before in in other places. Um, However, I was his first patient for him to do this. 
it meant starting with the more heavy-duty part of treatment first. So I dove right in. I lost my hair within one week, and it really knocked my blood cells um, down. My body was really depleted from my white blood cell count. So you were already really weak and then having to go into round two. Yes, yep. So we just had to have faith that, okay, the protocol's getting flipped and we're going to do this. Mairead was determined to fight this cancer, looking toward the light at the end of the tunnel when she would be finished with her chemo. Then she learned that there was another shortage that meant her treatment had to be changed once again. So then to get so close to your end date and then to hear that there's now another shortage was just exhausting, Mikan. I mean, it really, it really rocks you because you're thinking, A, the cancer's been out of my control and now potentially medication is out of my control. And to see your oncology team struggle because they're the ones to have to bear these messages but they're not in control of this either. That's heartbreaking because you know that they're also feeling helpless. Are you concerned that the changes in your protocol that you had to make or that your doctor had to make will affect your outcomes in some way? I know we made the best decision with the information and the resources we had at the time, but this is still a very new disease. You know, triple negative breast cancer, is still very new. Mm -hmm. And so the research being done on it is still very new. And I am worried. Yeah, yeah. That's Mairead McInerney. She is currently going through treatment for triple negative breast cancer. For now, she's done with her chemo. Drug shortages are affecting a lot of people right now, from cancer patients like Maraid to people who are trying to fill their Adderall prescription to cope with ADHD. There are also antibiotics that are short in supply and treatments for diabetes. Our definition of a shortage is when the, the hospital or the pharmacy has to change the way that they prepare or dispense a product. That's Erin Fox. She is a clinical pharmacist. Things like changing a patient's dose or using a different dosage form or uh, when a prescriber has to use an alternative, a completely different drug because the drug that they would like to use is not available. And in some cases, we do have to defer treatments or completely delay procedures. Erin is the Associate Chief Pharmacy Officer at University of Utah Health, a big health system headquartered in Salt Lake City. She's been documenting and tracking drug shortages for over two decades, and she's seen several serious ones. For me, it's a bit of a groundhog day. Um, we are in a very similar place to where we were, you know, in 2012, 2013, with a lot of oncology drug shortages at the same time. So, it's frustrating to see see this this happen again for kind of the same reasons. But unfortunately, right now, we are at a 10-year high in the number of drugs that we're tracking. Meaning the number of drugs where there are shortages right now. What are the causes of drug shortages? How did this happen? That is still a bit of a mystery, honestly. With most shortages, we don't have 
good information usually about what is happening, what is the root cause of that shortage. Part of that is because drug companies are not required to publicly tell you know, their patients or, or their customers exactly what's going on. Uh, they're allowed to keep it as a, as a secret. Aaron says sometimes it's staffing problems, extreme weather events that cause damage at a manufacturing plant, or quality control issues. But we don't get to find out. The whole system is very opaque. Even the people purchasing drugs for hospital systems or pharmacies don't have much information to go on. She says the worst shortages usually happen with injectable drugs that are used in hospitals and clinics like chemotherapy and generic drugs. One of the things that's interesting about that generic drug market is the only way that those products have to compete is price. That's because, you know, FDA rates those products as equivalent. But also the companies don't disclose additional information about, you know, maybe they might be doing a better job at quality or redundancy. They might have backup methods to make sure that they never have a shortage. So those companies are not competing on on those other factors besides price. And so unfortunately, these companies undercut each other in price and it's a race to the bottom. Wow. So they might know, oh, I can get Adderall from this vendor and it costs this much and I can get it from this other vendor and it costs that much, but they don't have any further information? It's just price. Yeah, it's exactly like if you're shopping on Amazon, but you have no ratings, the only thing you have is price when when you purchase a medicine. Aaron says the FDA does provide some information around issues affecting drug production, but it's very limited. They will post, you know, their their warning letters. They will post uh, inspections. And you can read those, but they're heavily redacted. And so it's impossible. So say you read read a warning letter and, and you think, oh, I don't want to buy any drugs from, from that factory. Let's, let's not have those at our clinic. Let's not have those at our hospital. It's impossible to do that because the list of products that are made at that factory is not available. It's considered to be a trade secret. And so, you know, with that kind of blockade to transparency, we really can't make a rating system that we need. FDA has all of the information. They could make a a rating system. They're actually working on one right now, but they don't intend to make those ratings public. And so... So what's the point? Right. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, seriously, what is the point of the rating system if it's not accessible? Yeah, you know, it's it's for FDA to use internally, which is great when things are are working well, but things are not working well right now. Erin supports a new proposal from the Brookings Institution. It's a three-pronged approach to addressing and preventing drug shortages in the U.S. We need to allow generic drug companies to compete on something more than price, such as quality. We need hospitals to be willing to pay a little bit more for that quality. And we need manufacturers to, you know, improve their facilities and and focus more on quality. Those three things, you know, making a little bit more transparent around the quality and the competition should incentivize those manufacturers to improve quality. And then hospitals, by paying a little bit more, um, hospitals are already paying more for shortages right now with labor and and other costs. Uh, This way they would just uh, pay a little bit more and actually get the drugs they need. All of those three things should work together to really help, help with the solution. 
And is anybody tracking the direct impact of these shortages, especially with things like chemotherapy, on lives, on people's health? Yeah, you know, we don't have necessarily a, a national tracking system where people can report if they are getting an alternative or were switched therapies or, you know, had to have their therapy delayed. That We know that there are published studies uh, from past shortages showing very detrimental patient effects. You know, um, there was a study for cardiovascular drug, you know, a, a drug used in the ICUs, When uh, norepinephrine was short, patients with sepsis who were, you know, very critically ill in, in ICUs had a higher mortality rate because the alternatives just were not as good as the norepinephrine. And so we know that sometimes alternatives can also have uh, higher rates of side effects. But as a general tracking mechanism, we don't have that. Uh, most of that just comes from independent research after the fact. Do you feel this this problem is treated with the amount of urgency it deserves. You know, it seems like yeah. it, it should be something where we're really clamoring for solutions because people's lives are at stake. Right. I, you know, I, I've, I've considered this to be, a, you know, public health crisis. That's, you know, why I've been so focused and passionate about working towards solutions for so long. Um, I will say that the attention that this, these shortages are getting right now, not only from the media, but also from Congress. Um, we've already had, you know, two, two hearings on drug shortages so far this year. This is the most attention this problem has ever had. And so I'm really encouraged by that. Again, it's frustrating to, to not see a lot of progress on, on this issue, but, but where we're at right now is the best it's been. So I'm optimistic. That's Erin Fox. She is a clinical pharmacist and the Senior Director of Drug Information and Support Services at University of Utah Health in Salt Lake City. Coming up, sometimes necessity is the mother of invention. We'll hear about efforts to create artificial blood to ease persistent shortages. So what we need is something that's shelf-stable. So something that is durable and can be used in an ambulance so that it won't be ruined if you take it out of the refrigerator for a few hours. That's still to come on The Pulse. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit teladochealth.com slash what's your why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C health slash what's your why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Noom. Noom understands that not everyone is starting from the same place and takes that into account. With their first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, you can find a hundred healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. This message comes from NPR sponsor REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing. Visit your local REI co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways to opt outside. 
Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts. This is The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. We're talking about shortages that are affecting medicine and healthcare. A small proportion of medical research is done on monkeys. Monkeys are about as close as scientists can get to testing something on humans. And research on these animals has led to treatments for diseases like Parkinson's, sickle cell disease, and most recently to vaccines for COVID-19. But now monkeys are in very short supply, which has had a big impact on research. Alan Yu has more. Jonah Sasha has been trying to cure HIV, the virus that causes AIDS, for a decade. He's an infectious disease researcher at Oregon Health and Science University in Portland. Scientists have worked on this for years. Recently, Jonah and his team had a breakthrough. They cured two monkeys that had the monkey version of the HIV virus. And we're studying these animals in great detail because we believe... The, the immune response that happened in these animals will begin to inform potential clinical therapies that we can take forward into people. They published their findings this year, but now progress has slowed because Jonah and his team have not been able to get more monkeys to continue their research for the past three years. At the time, we were able to get animals for around $4,000. This last it, um, I was in competition with a group that was willing to pay $19,000. That just gives you an idea of the pressure that is on this precious resource. Jonah cannot just use any monkey. He needs a specific type of monkey from the island of Mauritius. Those monkeys are all related to each other, which makes it easier for Jonah and his team to control their experiment and find out whether and how their treatment works. The monkeys are much more expensive now for two reasons. One, when the pandemic happened, researchers used a lot of animals to find treatments and vaccines for COVID-19. And two, China used to be by far the leading exporter of research animals to the US. China banned exports in 2020. It's sort of a rush on the bank, if you will. And so everyone is looking for animals to use, and they just don't exist. Jonah and his team had designed their study with eight monkeys in mind. After about a year of searching, they managed to get six this year. You spend many months meticulously developing your experimental plan, and then reality sets in and, you know, oh, you can't get the number of animals you want, or you can't get the type of animal that you would like. And so then you have to reevaluate your plan and then you have to be flexible. We have studies that are vaccine for HIV, a vaccine therapeutics for multidrug resistant tuberculosis, therapeutics for yellow fever virus. All of these projects are sitting in the queue waiting for animals. And so it really has reached a point now where you can just expect to start late on any study that you have. In the meantime, scientists have to find ways around the shortage. Carol Shively, a behavioral biologist at Wake Forest University, is working on treatments for urinary incontinence, bladder control issues. This is not a deadly problem like HIV, 
but it is a big problem that is estimated to affect health and quality of life for millions of people in the US. Carol got grant funding for her research four years ago. But now that she's reached the point of doing the study, monkeys cost three times what they did when she wrote the grant application. So she decreased her science budget to compensate. Every day we're going, okay, what can we do to reduce costs and still get as much science done as possible? She says that might mean doing fewer of the more sophisticated tests that require a technician's time. Or they might collect samples that they just do not study until they get more funding. In other cases, the research just stops while the scientists try to find monkeys. Virologist Thomas Geisbert studies treatments for rare but deadly human viruses. He's at the University of Texas Medical Branch in Galveston. And for pretty much all of the viruses that we work with in our lab, the only animal model that really reproduces a human disease accurately is the non-human primate. He's studying a treatment for Ebola. Thomas has also been stuck because of a lack of monkeys. He says that in the past two years, his lab could still slowly cobble together a research group for a study. We would find a vendor where we could get three, and then we would find a primate center where we could get maybe five, and then we'd find another vendor where we could get one. I'm not kidding. You're putting them together to try to make a study. We would just kind of postpone and delay, and we'd buy what we could until we could get enough that we needed to do a particular study. Now we're at the point where we just can't get any. The shortage also makes life difficult for the vets who take care of the research animals. Kristen Gardner is a clinical veterinarian at the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia. She says that many monkeys are social animals and need to live with friends. They also have different personalities, so vets like her take care to find monkeys that get along with each other before having them live together. Before you could say, I'm going to try this individual with X individual with Y individual, and they'll probably get along. And if they don't turn tend not to be a match, you can switch them to someone else. Now we like really have to assess and go and say, okay, we want this to work out because they may not have another friend, for example. So you have to maybe slow down the pairing process and introduce them super gradually. Now it's a slower and more deliberate game of musical chairs. Because if one monkey does not get along with the other ones, there are not a lot of other potential friends to choose from. The shortage of monkeys for research has been an issue for a while. The National Institutes of Health published a report on this problem in 2018. The NIH found that there are not a lot of these monkeys in the US, and the demands for research are growing faster than the monkey population. On top of that, the US government pays for only seven centers that breed and take care of monkeys for research. The NIH report found those centers need more financial support to replace old infrastructure and to expand their programs. The National Academy of Sciences just released another report this year that found the problem is now worse. Paul Johnson is the director of the Emory National Primate Research Center, one of seven government-funded centers in the U.S. that breed and take care of research monkeys. He says the U.S. needs to solve this issue now. 
because even if the US government were to pay to fix this issue immediately, the most commonly used species breeds once a year and has one baby in most cases. And it's going to be really three to four to five years before those animals can be assigned to research projects, at least most research projects. As the shortage continues, some scientists have collaborated more, shared data, so they do not need as many monkeys for their studies. The National Academy report found that it is possible that in the future, some of the research work could be done on cell samples, or even on a computer, instead of on monkeys. But right now, they cannot replace animal studies. Carol Shively points out the U.S. developed vaccines and treatments for COVID-19 partly thanks to research on monkeys. The COVID pandemic, you know, was the most recent pandemic. It's not the last pandemic. There'll be another one coming down the pike or other kinds of health challenges that we really need to be able to address using non-human primate research. So it's in our national security interest to have access to enough primates to be able to address those health issues for the human population. That story was reported by Alan Yu. You're listening to The Pulse. I'm Mike and Scott. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Sometimes shortages force us to innovate, to come up with new ways of doing things. The American Red Cross says that every two seconds, a person in the United States needs donated blood and platelets. But only about 3% of Americans give blood. It's a recipe for a constant nationwide shortage. For decades, scientists have been trying to create an artificial blood product that could be used where supply is short or altogether absent. Nobody has been entirely successful, but researchers at the University of Maryland School of Medicine think they are on the cusp of creating artificial freeze-dried blood. They are hoping this product will reshape trauma and wound care. Nicole Leonard took a trip to the Center for Blood Oxygen Transport and Hemostasis in Baltimore to find out more. Loud machines hum away in a small windowless lab room, and reddish liquid flows in clear columns that extend several feet down from the ceiling. Physician Alan Doctor explains what's happening here. This is where we purify. So we start with hemoglobin. So we get that from expired units of blood that the shelf life timed out, and they can't be given to people. Hemoglobin is a protein in red blood cells that carries oxygen to our tissues and organs. Alan points to the clear columns attached to a machine. So this allows us to separate just the hemoglobin from the broken cells, and we purify it using this system and collect it into a basically a bottle like this. It's also very chilly in this room. It's kept in the cold room because this takes about two days. Uh, to very slowly, selectively just get the protein that we want. What happens if the temperature is hotter? How would it affect that? Well, it, it, the protein starts to break down because it's outside the body. And so, just like you keep, you know, salmon and shrimp and steaks in the fridge. Cold temperatures are also a vital factor with donated human blood. 
if you take it out of the refrigerator, it's good for four hours. And if it's out of the refrigerator and you don't use it, you can't put it back. So it gets lost. Even in perfect conditions, donated human blood only lasts for about 42 days in a blood bank. That's an additional complicating factor in terms of blood supply. Not only are there not enough donations to meet demand, the product also expires quickly and is not shelf-stable. That's why most ambulances or combat medics don't just carry blood with them all the time. Allen and his colleagues hope to find an artificial substitute that can be freeze-dried and used in an instant after it's mixed with some water. So what we need is something that's shelf-stable. So something that is durable and can be used in an ambulance so that it won't be ruined if you take it out of the refrigerator for a few hours. His team, which includes biotech startup company Kalosite, is focused specifically on creating artificial red blood cells. So this is... um We're moving through a maze of different rooms, each designated for a different step in creating the product. It's a process with many challenges. First, they have to create the cell membrane, which they make from different human fats and cells. There's about five or six different types of fats that go to make up the membrane. And so this is, we're freeze-drying these lipids. So they, we put them into organic solvents like an alcohol, and then we freeze-dry it here, and each one of these is going to go make a batch of the artificial red cells. In another room, they work on actually forming the membranes and filling the cells. When the fat mixes with the water, it wants to form a bubble. And when it does that, it traps the liquid on the inside. And so that they basically automatically make water balloons. The cells have to be the right size, have the right stiffness before they go into the freeze dryer. Humans have trillions of red blood cells, and their job is to capture the oxygen we breathe into our lungs and bring it around to all of our organs and tissues. Every single red cell is like a little thermostat that's constantly asking, is there enough oxygen? No? Well, let's get a little more blood in here. When someone starts bleeding, whether it's a paper cut or another minor injury, plasma and platelets in the blood work to clot and close the opening our bodies immediately start replacing the lost red blood cells and hemoglobin with new ones so that our tissues and organs don't suffocate and die. But during major trauma, like gunshot wounds, explosions, or crush injuries, clotting may not work, and the body will struggle to replace red blood cells as quickly as it's losing them. Uncontrolled bleeding is the number one preventable cause of death in trauma. And unfortunately, Allen says it's common in war zones and military deaths. It's estimated that there'd be thousands, thousands of lost soldiers from the Afghanistan conflict that would be alive now if we could have given them transfusions at the point of injury. That means a medic running around with a field unit has the blood in their backpack And when someone gets wounded, they can crawl over to them and give it to them right away. Allen's project is being funded by the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, at the U.S. Department of Defense. 
The researchers are on a strict five-year timeline to create something that not only works, but can be reasonably manufactured. And Allen's part, the artificial red blood cells, are just one piece of the puzzle. Research teams at other universities and institutions across the country are working on freeze-dried plasma, platelets, and other components that, when combined, will more closely resemble human blood and its various functions. Alan says this is the first time different groups are collaborating in this way. It's as if we needed to make an airplane and you've got people over here making an engine and over here making a wing and over here making wheels, but nobody's trying to put it all together. Alan has dedicated two and a half decades of his career to blood and red cell research. He says he's never before felt so close to success. Right now, he's testing the cells in short-term animal studies. After that, there will be more animal studies and then clinical trials in humans if all goes according to plan. And as for the future uses of artificial blood, he says the sky is not even the limit. There's also the moon or, you know, some space travel uh, or other really kind of exotic locations where it's just you can't do transfusion. So the, you can't take blood with you to Mars. So there needs to be blood. In fact, for successful space travel, we need to have something like this. For The Pulse, I'm Nicole Leonard. That's our show for this week. The Pulse is a production of WHYY in Philadelphia. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts. Our health and science reporters are Alan Yu, Liz Tung, and Grant Hill. Marcus Biddle is our health equity fellow. Alan Hinnich is our intern. Charlie Kyer is our engineer. And this week, we had additional engineering from Adam Staniszewski. Our producers are Nicole Curry and Lindsay Lazarski. I'm Mike and Scott. Thank you for listening. Major funding for The Pulse is provided by a leadership gift from the Sutherland family. The Sutherlands support WHYY and its commitment to the production of programs that improve our quality of life. The Commonwealth Fund supports The Pulse and reporting on health equity. The Commonwealth Fund, affordable, quality health care for everyone. Behavioral health reporting on The Pulse is supported by the Thomas Scattergood Behavioral Health Foundation, an organization that is committed to thinking, doing, and supporting innovative approaches in integrated healthcare. WHYY's health and science reporting is supported by a generous grant from Public Health Management Corporation's Public Health Fund. PHMC gladly supports WHYY and its commitment to the production of services that improve our quality of life. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Learning. IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. Get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when you sign up today at IXL.com NPR. All that sitting and swiping, your body is adapting to your technology. Learn how and what you can do about it. I really felt like the cloud in my brain kind of dissipated. Once I started realizing what a difference these little bricks were making, there's no turning back for me. 
Take NPR's Body Electric Challenge. Listen to the series wherever you get your podcasts.